0: Hello and welcome to season two of Public Health Disrupted with me, Zand van Tulleken.
1: And me, Rachelle Burgess. Zand is a doctor, writer and TV presenter and I'm a community health psychologist and associate professor at the UCL Institute for Global Health.
0: This podcast is about public health, but more importantly, it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. So join us each month as we challenge the status quo of the whole field of public health, asking what needs to change, why, and how to get there.
1: In today's episode, we're delving into body positivity, something I am horrible at. And as always, we'll be examining the intricacies of its relationship and impact on public health. We'll be exploring what body positivity actually is, maybe helping me get some, uh, where it came from and who it serves, as well as the extent to which body positivity could actually help us tackle the obesity crisis. So let me please introduce you to our amazing guests helping us explore this topic today. We are delighted to welcome Stephanie Yeboa. Stephanie is an award-winning content creator. She's a blogger, author, freelance writer, and public speaker. A self-confessed opinionated fat babe, Stephanie's body image and self-love advocacy shines the spotlight not only on body positivity and where it came from, but also the sliding scale of ways in which different demographics fit into it. Stephanie's advocacy within the body positivity mental health and self-love communities involves sharing her own challenges and traumas involving experiencing fat phobia, bullying, self-esteem, and confidence issues. Further to these experiences and what we're hoping to learn more about today, Stephanie also shares with her community the ways in which she's been able to turn these challenges around, encouraging others to do the same. In 2020, Stephanie released her debut nonfiction novel, Fatally Ever After, A Fat Black Girl's Guide to Living Life Unapologetically, which became an Amazon bestseller in its first week of publication, indicating just how needed this book is.
0: And we're also joined by Dr. Aaron Parkhurst, lecturer of the Department of Anthropology here at UCL. Aaron is a medical anthropologist focusing on the dynamic human body as a nexus of social relations and social movements. His research focuses on the human body in places of medicine, sport, urban environments, outer space, and technological entanglement. And Aaron has developed new biosocial frameworks to understand and combat rates of chronic illness, type two diabetes, obesity, and heart disease in the United Kingdom and the United Arab Emirates. He brings together these diverse strands in his current research on space medicine, life science research, and the human body aboard the International Space Station. So Aaron, can we start with you? The phrase obesity crisis is in the news constantly. It has been the subject of literally hundreds of government policies over the last decade and and even further back. Can we start here with what is the obesity crisis, is this even a helpful way of thinking about health in the UK? Can you tell us a bit more about it? How did we get to where we are in the UK at the moment?
2: Sure. I think in the last 15 years, uh, we, we've seen a skyrocketing of, of chronic illness and non-communicable disease in this in this country. It's led public health officials to call it the biggest epidemic we've seen in this country in in 80 years. There is a public narrative on the behavioral in this aspect, that we're in the midst of this massive epidemic. Uh, The the narrative is that 80% of healthcare budgets go to treat advanced stages of non-communicable conditions. The NHS then is in financial crisis.
0: 100%.
2: And that the solution is free. So the focus then is on the behavioral. But there's also a range of long-held stereotypes on who is responsible for this behavior. And for so many people, it's not useful simply to say that you need to focus on behavior, that you need to focus on diet and exercise. The conditions of urban life make this advice, while true, also intolerable. So the work I think that we we're doing as anthropologists, medical anthropologists on chronic health, is meant to challenge that. As an anthropologist, uh, one of my disciplinary prerogatives, I suppose, is to think through those structures rather that permit and prohibit health-seeking behaviors, um, what other disciplines also might call social determinants of health. And so we look at quite a uh, a wide range of factors. When we think of registers of illness, especially non-communicable diseases, um, we might look at the biological, we might look at kinship and genetics, we might look at evolutionary theory, the idea that, 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 that fatness might be actually selected for through evolution. Uh, We might look at epigenetic causes more recently with new emerging sciences. We might look at the behavioral, of course, diet and exercise, the ecological, food availability and production. Uh, We might look at economics, economics um, permit and prohibit health. And of course, uh, social paradigms, which is where the anthropologist really comes in. Um, which we can get in, into a bit. The point is, is, that, is to show that none of these conditions, none of these these factors are worth considering as a standalone. They all, they all intersect in complex and myriad ways. So that is the perspective we take um, to, to think about what's going on with, with obesity in, this, in, uh, in the UK at the moment.
0: What you're suggesting is we are living in a health crisis that is generated by a crisis of many, many complex aspects of modern life, or at least it doesn't have to be modern life, but, but, but aspects of the way we live, so that people are so constrained that the option to take control of their health in any way they might want to, those options are very, very limited for them.
2: Uh, I agree, yes. I worked on a Lancet commission with, on culture and health, and And one of the side projects we did off off of this Lancet Commission was to do research on on health seeking behaviors and the gaps that we found in health seeking behaviors in various neighborhoods in london and so one one of the women we spoke to was is um, a Somali woman who uh, well it was a it was a general community in South London which had, was labelled as non-compliant, they had high rates of, of obesity, but also growing rates of type 2 diabetes. And the clinics had labelled them as non-compliant because they had higher rates than other members of that community who were going to the same clinic, um, maybe less likely to bring themselves or their, or their, or their children into their three-month consultations. They cared very, very deeply about their children's health. In one scenario, the mother was, you know, she had five children. She she worked and sweated, you know, devoted her life and her body to to feeding her children. She worked at a at a local grocery store and she worked six days a week. Um, one of the other children was cooking most of the dinners. She knew what she, exactly what she needed to do um, in order to 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 change her, her diet and to provide exercise. But it's not, it, it just wasn't possible. This story is not unique at all. You know, it's, this is what we call about social determinants of health. Um, so it, it isn't helpful to to tell this woman you're being non-compliant. You need to start caring about your body. You need to participate in these health seeking behaviors when it isn't possible.
1: Can I jump in there, Aaron? because I think this something really interesting I think that's happening here around this notion of power. I just would love to hear Steph's thought on power because I think body positivity, I have always thought of it as something that is born out of a rejection of power or the power of other ideas over you. But I don't know if that's right, because as I said in the beginning, my amount of body positivity is probably in the negatives. So <laughs> I want to hear the expert talk a little bit about it. And uh, uh, yeah, so Steph, what are, what are your thoughts on this, this idea?
3: Um, I think it's it's a really interesting one because with body positivity in and of itself, I mean, I could, there's like a whole section of, you know, the fact that now the current iteration of what body positivity is at the moment is rooted in a lot of power, which is why a lot of the advocates and activists within the body positive community at the moment have kind of rejected the current state of what body positivity is at the moment, but with regards to power and obesity, I think one of these... When it comes to the ways in which doctors diagnose and treat, you know, plus size patients, I do think it's rooted in a lot of economic power. A lot of classism, I think, is also entrenched in there as well. So things like fruits and vegetables and things like that can be a lot more expensive than, for instance, you know, the the countless amount of chicken and chip shops that we see on the street where they're selling um, uh, high calorie foods for 99p, two pounds. So, you know, when I was growing up, going to the chicken and chip shop was like an everyday kind of thing that everybody did after school because um a lot of working class parents you know they'll be working until 6 7 p.m so kids would have to we would have to kind of find something for us to eat after after going to school whereas you know in comparison to perhaps some either lower middle class upper middle class um Uh, families where the kids would, you know, come home from school and have a full meal and things like that. Um, So I do think sort of taking into account things like class and um, accessibility when it comes to the types of foods that we're able to get is definitely um, a big factor when it comes to power. I think another thing as well, and and it's an interesting one because I feel like every few years this subject uh, that I'm about to speak about comes up And people agree and then, you know, there's there's some discourse on it and then it kind of just floats away into the background after a while. And that is BMI. BMI is not an accurate form of diagnosing or or you know signaling whether somebody is obese or not because it doesn't take into account muscle mass race um it doesn't take into account so many different aspects of a person's being because the whole idea of bmi was based on european white men it was not they did not um sort of do any tests on people who are you know women uh people from different ethnicities it doesn't take into account muscle it doesn't take into account body fat content bone density uh body composition um and all of these kinds of things and so when people are diagnosed as being obese when they may technically not be I do think that is something to explore and I do think that there is or there should be ways that we can sort of gauge these things using measurements that aren't or weren't created by you know I think the person that created BMI wasn't you know he was a mathematician or a statistician or something like that and so I just I think it's such a it can be quite a damaging way to kind of tarnish people who may already feel a bit insecure about their bodies to say, oh, you
1: are, you know, obese. You know, I'm so happy that you brought that up. It, very interestingly, that type of narrative is what sort of brought us towards this episode, isn't it, Zan? So I was an obese pregnancy. I'm five foot three and have a butt. But anyway, the midwife, when she weighed me, she couldn't believe it my weight. So she took me to three different scales to weigh me <laughs> wow. because she was like, this must be wrong. This must be wrong. Right. And I just was like, by this point now I'm much older. Like I was also almost a geriatric pregnancy. So, you know, all of these fun labels going around. So by that point I had sort of created enough sort of like narrative and self-esteem about this, that I was sort of anticipating this sort of like weird dynamic that we were going to have when she put me on the scale, I was just thinking about like other women who would go through this and not have that sort of understanding also about the uselessness, in my opinion, of that particular metric. And so to sort of just be able to like leave that to the side and stuff, but it was just shocking, you know, like it's just, I think it's a very unhelpful metric. Like we must be able to do better than that.
0: I find this um, conversation so fascinating because of the four of us, I'm the one that was brainwashed into the process of going, but BMI is science, that an obese pregnancy is a a, a phrase that would be appropriate to describe anybody. So in thinking about this episode, one of the things that I think we were so interested in is how you resist those very, very common basic ideas that are grounded in a, in a, in a very particular sort of medical way of thinking. So there is – and, Steph, I'd love to start with you. I, I think a lot of healthcare professionals who have trained like me with the kind of, you know, but these are the numbers, these are the facts mm-hmm. – even if BMI was a really good measure that, that sort of didn't have the flaws you described, it's a very particular way of thinking about a human. You know, if, if, you, if you were working in a mining town where they were having to use toxic chemicals and you put up signs saying, you know, the chemicals in this mine kill, it's like, well, that wouldn't be good for anyone's health. They're just stuck in the environment with all the chemicals. In the same way, sticking up that poster saying obesity kills, you just go, well, hang on, this is an unavoidable consequence of the the huge numbers of sort of lack of freedom and, and constraints that are imposed on people. So I'm I'm really interested, Steph, can you just talk about how you resist that? Like what does body positivity look like in the real world? How do, how do you practice it? How does someone like me go into the world and look at things differently, talk about things differently, write differently. I don't know if this is too big of a menu to, can you change my life? Um, But can you talk a little bit about the movement and how, how it resists those simple discourses? Yeah,
3: definitely. So the whole thing with, I think with obesity, I think it's a lot more nuanced than people seem to think it is. I think people who who have not lived in a plus size body can sometimes have a view of it as oh it's just this person's fault they are the reason that they look like that it's their fault and that is where a lot of the shaming and the fat phobia comes from because there is this assumption that this person chose to look like this they have a lack of control they have a lack of discipline therefore we have every right to shame and to call people names and to, you know, say all of these things. And even the word obesity, like for me, it's such a heavy word that is rooted in so much shame in a way that other medical medical Mm. names for body types aren't so even calling you know somebody skinny or something like that policing fat bodies is so normalized in our society people don't seem to realize the effects that it can have on somebody who is being hit with those words and I think the huge overarching thing that that we seem to kind of miss out I think within the medical industry when it comes to uh, obesity, fatness is mental health. So everybody is speaking about you have to move more, you have to um, eat less, and all of these things. But nobody really speaks about the mental health implications and why somebody might get to the size that they are. A lot of the time, it's due to bullying. A lot of the time, it's due to depression, anxiety, emotional eating. I would get bullied for being bigger, then I would eat more because I just didn't really know how to process all of the depressed feelings and stuff. Then I would get even bigger and. I'm I would get bullied for being even bigger. And I think we really need to start incorporating mental health and how changing the framework of how people see bigger bodies. And by bigger bodies, I mean, like I even mean like somebody that's a size 14 or a 16 or whatever the case may be. Like it's it's about changing how society views bodies that are not slim. Um, And it's about uh, speaking to somebody with kindness and taking away the shame, not making that person feel as if they are unworthy. And that was what the body positivity um, community was supposed to be about. So we're currently in our, I want to say, second or third wave of the body positivity movement. It was a movement that was predominantly spearheaded by black, larger plus size women in both States and in the UK and it was a platform where women would upload photos, videos of them like wearing really cool clothes, think pieces but mostly images of women just learning how to love themselves in a world that constantly tells them that they're not good enough. So for the movement it starts with self-esteem, confidence and mental health. These are the three factors that I do feel are missing when it comes to you know, trying to make somebody feel as if their bodies are worthy. So a lot of people tend to say that the body positivity movement is trying to promote obesity and things like that, which has never been the case. It's promoting feeling happy and feeling confident in your skin and to take away the element of shame. Because fat phobia, fat policing, fat shaming is so ingrained and normalized in our community, uh, in the westernized community by way of the media, by way of how fat people are portrayed in the news. It's a very dangerous form of prejudice, in my opinion. Um, And so for the movement, it's all about radically and unapologetically trying to live your best life and trying to increase your confidence and just trying to normalize bodies that may not be a size six or a size eight and to say just because you are obese or just because you are fat it doesn't mean that you have to hate yourself it doesn't mean that you are unworthy of love the movement is not to say put on weight put on weight you know you'll look bit be- you'll look better if you're bigger it's to say if you are big if you do have this body type, please don't hate yourself. Like try and increase your self-esteem, try and increase your confidence, and just know that you are an amazing, beautiful person. And that's basically that in a in a nutshell, that's kind of what the, the movement is supposed to be about.
0: That's a very beautiful description of the movement, which I think I think is a it's difficult to describe sort of multiple waves of a, a complex social movement. The thing that's so striking in what you're saying is like a lot of important social progress the the ask is so small it's like could could we just treat people with some dignity and respect and could we not have prejudice and unkindness and these things it's like that you're not you're not asking for anything too complicated um and it's kind of horrifying that it that you're you're having to articulate it in that way but um you described that really 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 well
1: anthropologists are trying to study sort of like what makes us Sort of people and how we relate to each other in our social worlds, and I just, I just wondered if Erin wanted to come in on that before we moved on to the next thing, because I dip my toe into anthropology and ethnography every now and then, and my feeling is, even though it seems like such a simple ask, it is like the actually the hardest ask, you know, like the the changing of these social norms and our patterns of engagement with each other is incredibly complex. So, you know, Aaron, what, what are your thoughts on our ability to respond? I have a
2: lot of thoughts on that, Rochelle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that are structures of society that inform the way we we approach the concept of health. And and I think body positivity, listening to stuff is is a useful tool to start to question these 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 structures, you know, you spoke about bullying and and mental health when we were doing our obesity studies, trying to to rethink the profiles of who we're actually speaking about when we talk about obesity. These were some of the factors that we looked at, but more generally um, sort of conditions of uncertainty that that um, that that actually transformed the body in certain ways. It was economic mobility. Um, that that seem to really inform rates of noncommunicable diseases. So in, body positivity might be a really useful tool to say, you know, if we can talk about obesity, but um, the focus doesn't have to be on my body. The focus doesn't have to be a BMI. It doesn't have to be a number that says my body is pathological. That um, it's making society sick. Rather, uh, body positivity might be a good tool to say there are structures in society that are making us that are making us sick Um, and we can reclaim our bodies back and really focus on some of these larger structures. Um, and it doesn't have to be just in the clinic. It can be, you know, I've read Stephanie's work. You know, I've read some of your articles when you're talking about gym memberships and exercise classes. Uh, I've the same thing you see in the clinic. You see sort of neoliberal structures in the gym, more or less the general message. And same, you know, same message in different words of you no know, pain, no gain type of thing, you know, and. And that's that's not helpful. The, the the walk in, crawl out type of type of message that you have to be productive, that our bodies are the site of success, um, and that is measured through 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 BMI or other metrics. Um, that the built environment of of places where people should be seeking health and are seeking health. Um, are sort of counterintuitive to that.
0: I'm curious, Steph. How do you resist becoming a very negative movement? Everything you've said is is positive, is kind, is generous, is inspiring, um, and you're not focused on you know these corporations, these politicians, you know these people are killing us, and this is you know you know people's bodies are not just not just uh, weight, but all aspects of our health are almost entirely manifestations of the environment we live in, rather than the choices that, you know, we don't really have freedom of choice, and all, very, very few people have that. So how do you resist becoming an angry movement, and is it even appropriate to become an angry movement? And what, at what moment should you be demanding change? Should you be insisting upon identifying the really, the sort of, the, the bad guys, the bad actors, the real sources of harm?
3: So it's interesting that you ask that question because... The current wave of the body positive movement, some could actually say that it is quite problematic. So as much as I talk a lot about body positivity and as much as it was a movement in the beginning, that was really a movement for larger fat people to feel Uh, It was a safe space for larger fat people to come into these communities, make friends, share each other's stories, share things like, you know, where you can buy these plus size clothes or uh, where you can buy, you know, wide fit shoes. All of these things that we don't have as much access to. That is how the movement started. However... (laughs) um, in around 2014 slash 2015 we started to see the body positive movement pick up prominence in the mainstream so a movement that once was really only quite underground it was on things like tumblr it was like facebook groups and then it moved on to instagram once instagram began to uh pick up popularity sort of 2014, 15, and through the use of influencers and models and things like that, so plus size influencers, what we started to see was a shift in the ways in which body positivity was being promoted. So in the beginning, it was for bodies that didn't carry as much social privilege as everyone else. So a lot of disabled bodies, a lot of plus size bodies who were, you know, people who were probably 18, 19, 20, 21 stone, 22, you know, on the larger scale of being plus size. And as soon as we get to this this forefront where the, the news and the media started reporting on, oh, there's this new movement where people are, you know, teaching others to love themselves, there was a very quick radical shift in the types of bodies that started to become promoted. And we saw this happen quite radically within fashion, first and foremost. So we had a lot of fashion brands. Uh, hop on the body positive train. They started to create plus-size clothing in their mainstream brands. However, the models that they used, the spokesmodels, the activists and the advocates for the plus-size community started getting smaller and smaller and smaller, more hourglass-shaped, mid-sized bodies. So the more prominence the body positivity community uh, picked up, the smaller the people in that community became with regards to visibility. So you stopped seeing influencers and models and things who were like a size 22, size 24, size 26. And you started seeing women who were chubby at best. So hourglass shaped and in our, in our community, we call them acceptable fat or like, you know, um, the kind of fat where it's like, they're not really going to get harassed or they're not going to get, you know, they still reap a lot of the benefits of being on the smaller side of fat. So, you know, you're sort of hourglass shaped, still sexually attractive to the public type bodies. And the bodies that weren't seen as attractive enough were kind of marginalised. And yeah, we just became completely invisible. And so it developed a bit of a schism within the body positive community with a lot of people on the higher end of being fat now developing a, a kind of subset community, which was the radical fat acceptance movement. And so that is where I kind of more align with now. And that that movement is a lot more, as it says in the word, radical. So we're very much trying to you know, push the scope of, of, of what we feel we deserve from Society, Fat people doing things that smaller people can do is now seen as a radical act because people expect us to shy away or to be insecure or to not want to show up or to be, you know, to be quite um, quiet. And within the fat acceptance communities and some body positive um, aspects, Our way of being radical, our way of being non-compliant, so to speak, is to show up and be even bolder, to take up space, to be louder and to say we deserve to do all of the normal things that everybody else in normal bodies can do and not be made to feel bad for doing that.
0: Do either of you believe the body positivity movement could be used to help tackle the obesity crisis? After listening to both of you, it feels like that question is almost inappropriate. Like the obesity crisis is still framing it in terms of this idea that the problem is people living with obesity or living with overweight. And really, what is going on in this country is a massive health crisis due to people being unable to make choices about the way they live because of the hours they're compelled to work, because of inequality and extreme poverty, because of, you know, currently, you know, energy inflation, um, all those things, plus like the legacies of racism, of other discrimination, all sorts of intersectionalities that, that make many people's lives even more difficult. And so the idea of like the obesity crisis, like why can't we make people thinner Feels to me, having listened to you, an inappropriate question now. But I do wonder if the body positivity movement might be able to address the wider health crisis or maybe maybe even a, a crisis of sort of lack of freedom or lack of opportunity. Is that how you see it?
3: One of the main things, I guess, that we try and do within the movement is to say, because autonomy is such an important thing within the movement, we don't want to tell people you shouldn't lose weight you should just be happy the way you are. That is one aspect of it. But we also try and promote, if you do want to lose weight, that is absolutely fine. It's a judgment-free zone. You shouldn't, everybody is allowed body autonomy. But if you are going to lose weight and if you are doing something uh, for your health, which is which is completely important, please, please, please do not do it from a place of self-hate because the way in which you will lose weight or the, the, the yeah, the way in which you will lose weight will not be the same as if you were trying to lose weight from a place of love. And again, I use myself as an example. When I was younger, I had I had really terrible uh, eating disorder. It wasn't seen as an eating disorder because I was fat and eating disorders are often framed around very slim white women. We you, you don't really talk about eating disorders within the frame of plus size people having disorders. So, you know, it would be me not eating. It would be me um, purging or um, having liquid, diets for months and months and months at a time. And when you're doing weight loss from a place of hate, you don't want to wake up every day and see that body. So you try and lose weight in the quickest way possible. You want the results sort of tomorrow. And in order to get those results tomorrow, people will tend to do very unhealthy ways of losing weight. So whether it's fasting or whether it is developing an eating disorder, people just want to wake up the next day and not see the weight. However, if you reframe your thinking, and think to yourself, okay, I, I do want to lose weight, but I, I want to love my body during this process. Then you won't care about how long it takes to lose the weight because you know that you're doing it from a place of care. You know that stable weight loss and long lasting weight loss is something that is a lifestyle change. You have to love yourself through that process and treat your body with respect instead of treating it with contempt. And instead of treating it as something that is despised and needs needs to get rid of. So for me, I think in terms of how we talk about weight loss and healthy eating and things like that, the way that you feel towards your body when you're losing weight will impact how you treat your body during that process.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's amazing advice. That's really lovely.
1: Aaron, do you wanna?
2: Oh, I'm not sure how to follow that. I mean, I, a linguistic medical anthropologist um, <laughs> completely agree simply the ways in which we talk about our bodies, um, the metaphors we use to understand our bodies and the world around us shape, radically shape our health. They shape the way we approach health. Um, And of course, the language we use to describe anything. So to go back to, to Zan's point about calling it the obesity epidemic, and I I agree. And obesity becomes a placeholder to think through what is was then framed as comorbidities for obesity. When we speak to you know we when we speak to um um health ministers in in Parliament about you know applied aspects of the obesity research that we've we've done, they ask, well, what you know what can we do to tackle this? You know, you tell them, well, you know, address your foreign investment policy in Mayfair or whatever. Nobody can afford to live in London. If you can't afford to live in London, where do you have to go? You have to go out to Sevenoaks. I don't know. Somewhere somewhere outside the M25 where you, if you've got a family and you want to buy a three-bedroom house and you don't, you know, even there, it's, it's £515,000. If you can't afford to live where you work you have to commute. If you have to commute, the average commutes like an hour and 20 minutes a day in London. Then if you want to spend any time with your family, what's the first thing to go if you've got two over 2 hours of commuting every day? Is your own health seeking behaviors. There's no time to go to the gym. It takes 40 minutes to cook, you know, a, a healthy meal but that's actually a lot of time if you if you have to commute. So we say something Silly, like change your foreign investment policy in Mayfair. Maybe we could all afford to live in London with you've got all these empty apartments. Nobody wants to hear that, but that's that is so from my angry perspective, that's the epidemic, is these structures of of neoliberalism and society and capitalism that prohibit any form of real health seeking behavior. Um, I truly believe that the diet and the exercise, that will come. If people could just walk to work or cycle to work, even that would come. Um, and there's there's an element to that that would be a bit organic. There's a reason in the last twenty years that th- that the rates of chronic illness have skyrocketed among demographics that traditionally they hadn't. So, I suppose body positivity, um, listening to the conversation and listening to stress narratives is is one way to to take back, that, um, take back our bodies and say stop focusing on my body and the way I look for, for public health and pathology. And instead, um, maybe it can be used as a tool to force people to think through those structures of society that prohibit health-seeking behaviors.
1: So at the end of every episode, guys, we ask all of our guests – to think about a piece of art or music or poetry that has disrupted your thinking. It can be beyond health. So anything in your life that uh, that has disrupted your perspective and the way that you see the world. So let's ask Steph first.
3: Oh, so for me, it was actually a piece of artwork
1: that I saw
3: when I was in the thick of sort of my self-love movement and on my self-love journey, should I say, and I was... I was incredibly depressed and feeling low and everything and everywhere. And everybody around me was saying that it was wrong for me to exist in the body that I'm I'm in. And, you know, was being gaslit a lot and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember I came across this piece of artwork by Henry Matisse. And it was just this artwork, of, it was like a scribble of like a plus size woman. And underneath it, it said, my curves are not crazy. And I remember just seeing that and just being like, wow like it, it kind of instilled something in me to kind of it really did help change uh how I felt from that day on in my body it was a small thing but it really did kind of it really was the catalyst to kind of be like wow like seeing an objective piece of art from this artist that existed you know maybe hundreds of years ago and even then him kind of captioning it as that um he may have not even been talking about like plus size bodies, but it was just, I guess, because it was like a plus size woman drawing and it had that underneath, it kind of made me feel like, okay, so I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm not, you know, I'm not um, delusional. I'm not all of these things that people, seemed to see me as like, I'm not crazy for existing in this body. And it was just such a beautiful piece of artwork for me. And, you know, years later, I ended up like buying a print of the painting and it's now kind of hanging up in my, in my living room now. Um, but yeah, that, I think that painting for me was really one of the ones that really spearheaded a radical overhaul in how I saw my body.
1: It's fantastic. Thank you, Erin. your turn.
2: I think the most powerful piece of music that I ever heard was, was quite literally powerful, um, physically powerful. Uh, I, I teach the anthropology of the body at ECL and I was, this was about 10 years ago. I was, trying to, I was trying to design the module and think of how to teach um, this concept of phenomenology, this, um, this fight against Cartesian dualism, mind and body separation, and actually these abstract ways in which body and emotion are intimately linked. Um, and I went to the Royal Albert Hall and we heard Camille Saint-Saëns' Organ Symphony. And uh, and so it sounds a little bit pompous, but um, the organ at the Royal Albert Hall is extraordinary. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. It's got thousands of pipes and it's so huge that when it opens and air starts passing through, uh, you actually feel... You feel the instrument because it changes the air pressure quite radically in the room and it vibrates all of your bones. So you feel it. Um, You almost feel the heart palpitation a good two seconds before you hear the actual sound. And the reason why this is cool is because, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to have this fight against meaning necessarily for for art in the in phenomenology or, or, or sort of existential philosophy. And you look around the room and people are listening to this, or they're listening to the way the London Symphony Orchestra plays um, Strauss, also Strauss, or Thrustra, where they use that organ in this big booming note at the end of those famous opening bars. And people start crying. And you talk to them afterwards, and they don't know why. It's not that it reminded them of their childhood or had some sort of deep narrative or meaning for them um it's literally that visceral experience of the organ that that produces this emotion so it's a, a really great way to teach sometimes abstract ideas of of affect um and the abstract linkages between body and emotion well thank you so much guys that was an amazing conversation i
1: i loved every second of it
0: thank you both so much that was Just so you just steered us through it beautifully thank you
1: You've been listening to Public Health Disrupted. This episode was presented by me, Rochelle Burgess, and Zand Van Teleken, produced by UCL Health of the Public and edited by Annabelle Buckland at Decibel Creative. Our thanks again to today's amazing guests, Stephanie Yaboa and Dr. Erin
0: Parkhurst. If you'd like to hear more of these fascinating discussions from UCL Health of the Public, Do make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Come and discover more online. Keep up with the school's latest news, events, and research. Just Google UCL Health of the Public. There are all kinds of cool things going on. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everybody.